Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP and the Vice President of Publishing at ASHP. I'll be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. Again this year, as a celebration of pride, ASHP will host podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy. With me today is Dean Jim Scott of the Toro University, California College of Pharmacy and president of the California Society of Health System Pharmacists. Jim Scott, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, Jim, let's start off talking about your early life. Tell us about your youth growing up. I think you were born in the Chicago area, went on to live in Michigan for a while, also lived in Florida. Tell us about your early years. Sure. I was the youngest child of three to a single mother. My parents had separated shortly before I was born, actually, so I never knew them together. We were not wealthy at all. Nobody in my family went to college. My mother didn't graduate high school. She got a GED. She had taken some community courses. My father went from high school to the military. There was really no role models in the family. We were pretty poor. We were on welfare. My mother had to make a difficult decision whether to be on welfare and raise her kids or to work at a minimum wage job and struggle probably even more. And so she was on welfare for a few years. Uh, Once I went into kindergarten, then she went out and, and started working again. So in elementary school, oftentimes you have periods where, where kids donate food and it's for different uh, needy families and stuff. And so one year for Thanksgiving, we were the recipients of the food for the needy family. And it, it didn't really impact me at that time, but it impacted me later on. And as I was growing up and I remembered back of this is really where I am from and where I came from. So I think that aspect of things, being a first-generation college graduate, let alone graduate school, it gives me a different perspective for a lot of the students. On top of the the challenges of your childhood, uh, every one of us, and we get asked this question, sometimes I cringe, but then at some point during your childhood, I imagine you began to grapple with the realization that you were gay and people love to ask you that question at parties you know Mm -hmm. when did you know when did you start to recognize that you were a gay male i think a lot of people when they answer that they say oh i always knew or i always knew i was different and i'd say i always knew that i was different but i don't know that that had anything at all with being gay because even now i think i'm a little bit different than other people and that that's okay i I embrace that Um, but (laughs) But for me, honestly, uh, I can remember the exact situation, the day, not the, I don't know the date and the time, but I, I had that specific scenario in my mind when I realized it and I was in class and I realized that I was staring at somebody and not even focusing in my thoughts. And when I focused in my thoughts, I realized what I was thinking, which is what many 13-year-olds would be thinking about somebody that they found attractive. And I cried myself to sleep that night. And when I woke up in the morning, I said, okay, I guess this is who I am. And I dated a couple of girls in high school because I figured I had to be sure. I didn't just want to make a decision about where my life was going to go without knowing for sure that I, that I wasn't also interested in girls. And um, 
didn't didn't work wasn't really interested and um just kind of kind of laid out the future where my my personal relationships were going to go so jim you said you cried yourself to sleep that night but began to i guess i'll go back to the word grapple when did you start to talk with those people that were closest to you in your life and begin to share with family members for example that you were gay Ooh, college college i kept it all internal i had enough insight i think at that age to know that if you were out that you weren't treated well and not just that you weren't treated well but you were treated differently and that there may be opportunities for different things that i wanted to do that wouldn't be available to me because we're talking early 80s at the time right around the beginning of the AIDS epidemic back when it was called gay related infectious disease grid um, and those types of things and and so it was just not a good time to tell people who are are predisposed to taunting about somebody like that about you and so it wasn't until i was in college after i had friends and started dating that i started going back and then telling my family you're absolutely right the it was a different era and you know, when you think about that era and so I started a bit earlier in the 80s than you did, but you came along and we started our careers in pharmacy in the 1980s when in the times as we've been talking about were so much different. One of the things that I find interesting is that you were really transparent, though, early on in your career, I think far more than than I ever was at that point in time about being a member of LGBTQ organizations, we didn't call them that back then, but being a member of, of organizations. And you even included that on your CV, I think. So what drove your thinking? Yeah, great point, Dan. The reality was once I got to college, I knew that I wanted to be out and I just had to find the best pathway for that. And I had some friends at first, and then I got involved with this group called the GLSU, the Gay and Lesbian Student Union at the University of Florida, which was off campus at the time. And I made some really good friends and we got the group back onto campus. And then we my group of friends and I, we kind of took turns being leadership in there. And so I kind of went from treasurer or sergeant at arms to treasurer to president-elect and president. And that was really a lot of my involvement. So, So most of that actual officer, official officer stuff was in pharmacy school. I had some issues with my classmates. I was outed fairly early in my pharmacy school time. So I was not involved in pharmacy organizations in particular. But I knew that leadership experience and background was going to be important for advancement. And I said, this is my leadership experience that I have. If I'm going to include that on there, I need to put it on there and I need to be open about it. So that was kind of why I put it on and why I didn't take it off or keep it off was I figured if I'm going to be training with somebody, working side by side with somebody, I don't want that to be an issue. I don't want them to to worry about anything. I don't want them to be uncertain about me, I wanted to be open. And if they had a problem with it, then they didn't need to hire me. And I was okay with that. I knew that there were going to be programs out there that would hire me. My whole residency fellowship pursuit is a bit atypical as well. And we can talk about that if you want, but I knew I had an opportunity with a preceptor who was starting up a residency to be able to do a residency if I didn't get through the regular means. And on the fellowship, I wanted to do HIV work. And how can you, why would I want to work for somebody who's doing a fellowship if they were going to have a problem with me being gay? 
that would be hypocritical of them and, and I just wouldn't want to work with them. It's, I mean, it's just so insightful. And for someone at still a tender age and grappling with just recognizing what, especially at that point in time, there were so many more societal issues than even today. Did it ultimately result in you not getting positions, do you think? Yes, and that's fine. So you've talked about, you've made reference to your fellowship, but talk about your career journey then, starting with your pharmacy education at the University of Florida. But, you know, let's get into sort of your career path, because I think it's really fascinating uh, the places you've been. Sure. So, so University of Florida, I worked full-time during pharmacy school. I often recommend that people work during school. I never, ever recommend that they work full-time. But the curriculum was different back then as well. I don't think it was quite as dense as it is now. And we didn't have the IPPE that we have now. So I I worked a year and a half in a hospital full-time, which was murder. And I worked a year and a half as a lab tech uh, with one of the faculty in our college I got along with very well. So I just kind of put that in there because that kind of started my research interest and solidified my inpatient care interest. So when I graduated, I got a residency in geriatrics at the Gainesville VA, and that was a great opportunity. It wasn't intense with the geriatric stuff where I couldn't do anything else. And I had some flexibility to kind of make it my own. And my my preceptor was also just really flexible to give me the infectious disease related uh, monographs and assignments and those types of things. So I did my residency there. I did my fellowship at the University of Illinois, Chicago, ID. Also a great environment. I did some lab work, some clinical research, clinical care, some teaching. It was really broad based, which is what I really needed for me to be happy. Because I I knew that just doing one thing wasn't going to make me happy in my career. I needed to wear multiple hats. So I did my fellowship, came out of that, and I, I worked in Buffalo for three years. The group no longer exists, but it was a pretty big name at the time, the Clinical Pharmacokinetics Lab with uh, Jerry Shentag and Alan Forrest. So I worked for them for three years. And I learned to do some, some incredible types of research. And if you know Alan Forrest, I learned to do some incredible types of statistics, which I would never have dreamed of myself doing. That job ended after a hospital merger, and I decided to look around outside of Buffalo because why would I stay in Buffalo? And I ended up finding a position in LA as an HIV-focused faculty member. So it really was the opportunity that I had been wanting for a while. And I'm kind of one of those people who feels that even if you're not right where you're supposed to be right now. You're right where you need to be in order to go where you want. And so, so I, I was able to, to get that faculty position. And so for 10 years, I practiced at an HIV clinic in Hollywood. I did research. Um, I was reasonably well-funded. I taught it. I had students all over the place. I was traveling all over the place, speaking on advisory boards. I was developing leadership skills with in the school. I went through the AACP's leadership program. And then in 2010, I took on an associate dean role at the school. I had looked outside of the the school. I had uh, two offers on the table, one pending. And my dean at the time came forward and said, we'd like to keep you. This is probably the best role for you. And it was experiential, which I had a, a really good background for. And I did that for 11 years. And during that time, I'll kind of throw in, I 
got pulled into teaching the LGBT care. And it started out with, this is what homosexuality is, and this is what coming out is. And and that was the, the bigger part of it for a long time. And then it eventually evolved because I found that people People knew society was changing. The people that I was talking to were changing. And that whole idea of, I don't know what a homosexual is or what a homosexual looks like, it it was fading away in front of me. And so I was really able to shift it from, this is what it means to come out to, these are the things that a healthcare practitioner needs to know about the LGBT patients. And so I could talk about coming out and I've certain number of different people that coming out is not a singular event. It is a set of non-sequential events. You come out to different people at different times for different reasons. And some people you never come out to. I had a friend in high school who in his 20s, his parents were in their late 60s, early 70s. And he said, I, I just don't see a reason to come out to them because it's going to really disturb them. So why add angst to their lives? I think he eventually did, but the point is, is that people have different reasons for coming out or not coming out to different things. So, so I taught that throughout the curriculum and my approach for my own sexuality was it's not their business. It's my business. I'm not going to lie about anything. I'm not going to hide anything, um, but I'm not going to talk about it. And so I I was able to actually give those lectures without actually saying me or my community or, or, or those types of things. And some people knew. In 2010, around that same time when I started that position, I met my current husband. So a couple of years into our relationship, he was accepted into our pharmacy program. So that was a little bit awkward. We had told people that who needed to know, the dean knew, admissions knew, student affairs knew, but we didn't want the general student body to know. And I think some of it kind of filtered out, but we made it through four years successfully and then and stay together and we're still together now and he's helping to support me as he's working in a non-traditional world. So it's probably a lot more information than what you wanted from the simple question, but, but there it is. No, it's a fascinating, and there's so many places that I want to go from there. First, as someone who was right down the throughway from you in Rochester, New York, during some of those years, I would disagree with you and say that Western New York is a wonderful place to live. So there's many reasons to stay there. I wanted to follow up, though, on something that you talked about with your time at Buffalo, because you said, said the position ended because of a merger of hospitals. So I think that there's some important insights there Jim, because I think when when people lose their jobs, and especially early in your career, you can think, this is devastating. Where do I go from here? But I look at you as where you have gone from there. And just wondering if you could talk about that a bit, what it felt like at that time, and really how you reacted and turned it around. As many young professionals do in pharmacy, I was working on the side. I was working at Rite Aid. And that was a whole other type of experience right there. But when I got the layoff notice, I was, it was basically beginning of December. I was given funds to go to mid-year to look for a new job, but my position was ending January 1, 2000. And they had a weird thing where I had to be unemployed for three weeks during that severance package. I was like, fine, I can use a three-week vacation. So I enjoyed that. And I had Rite Aid. So I worked full-time at Rite Aid. So I knew that I had that. I quickly had opportunities in Buffalo. The hospital that we merged with, their pharmacy department and our pharmacy department were very different in how things were structured. So I was basically said, you know, if you want to come over to this hospital and work, you can do that. But it wasn't 
doing the research and it wasn't with that well-known group and it wasn't going to advance my career. I was also teaching at a PA program and I thought I was going to lose that as well in the process. So that was part of it. And then I was basically offered a clinical position with Rite Aid. They were hoping to increase their clinical services. And so I was in negotiations with her for that when I had the interview for Western U. Uh, or not when I had the interview necessarily, but around the time that I got the offer. Um, so when I had the interview, I didn't think I was going to get it. I was convinced that I wasn't going to get the position. So I was quite surprised when I did. So I always knew that I had a paycheck coming. I could continue with the right aid for a while. But I knew that if I was going to progress with my future, I needed to leave Buffalo, number one, because professionally, it wasn't doing for me what I needed it to do. And then personally, I wasn't I spent three years there and I hadn't dated anybody more than a couple of weeks at a time. And so personally, it wasn't doing what I needed it to do. You also said that you knew early on that one thing wouldn't make you happy. And I wonder, did you always aspire at some point to be a dean or what was that track for you in terms of when did you realize that that's truly where you wanted to go with your career? It was also a singular event. I was leaving a faculty meeting. I had kind of changed all through school and, and college. I was in class. I was usually the quiet one and in, in, not necessarily in the back, but usually the quiet one. And at staff faculty meetings, I started becoming a bit of the class clown and, and stuff. But I was leaving a faculty meeting and one of my colleagues said, you know, Jim, you're going to be a dean someday. And I laughed at him. I literally laughed at him. He's like, no, no, really. Several of us here have talked about it. You're going to be a dean someday. And that planted the seed. And my philosophy has always been, you have to have a direction that you're going in. You have to be moving towards something. You can deviate from that if something really comes up that's super interesting. But if you're not going somewhere, you're not going anywhere. And so... This was probably right around the time that I got promoted and tenured, and I was trying to figure out what that next brass ring was. Because for the first few years in, in academia, that's that, that first brass ring is a promotion at, with or without tenure, depending on your institution. And I'd gotten that. And I was like, okay, now what? And so that ended up being what it was. And so I was able to work with the dean, Dan Robinson, and really help to progress forward in my leadership skills towards that goal. So does your identity as a gay man influence your position as a dean? I don't think so. I mean, there's an old adage that gay men and women generally work harder because they're trying to prove themselves. And I don't know that I do that. I think pharmacists also do that. So I've probably done that more, work harder as a pharmacist to prove myself. But I don't think it has because I've really kept it internal. I don't talk personal stuff at work very often. So I don't I personally don't think it really has had much of an impact. And that's where I really wanted to go next. So you, you had said that earlier in your career, you didn't talk about it a lot. But do the students know that their dean's gay? It depends on how much they talk. <laughs> I have introduced my husband to students. In, I think, all three years of the program, so Brandon has been to some events with me. Being a pharmacist as well, he can connect. He has done, like, an informational Zoom session with uh, incoming students without saying that he's my husband because we don't want any biases with that. 
but again, it, it's not something that I, it, it's not work-related. My sexuality is not work-related. So it's not something that I feel the need to disclose, but I don't hide it. And in a dean position, the spouse is often there with people. And so I don't hide that. And I'm hoping that people are talking to each other and that it is fairly commonly known because I want to be a role model for the LGBT patient, uh, not patients. I want to be a role model for the LGBT students who are in our program or in others, that it doesn't hold you back, that people can still accept you, and that if people don't care at all about the fact that you're gay, that that's even better. Do students seek you out for advice? They don't know me as well here as they did at Western U, but I had a handful of students who, would, who were within the LGBT community who would come and talk to me about issues questions, stuff, that type of thing. It just seems to me that your your life experiences, as you describe your youth, uh, your experiences as a gay man, that that you just have great capacity to empathize with, with students and maybe some of those who are most vulnerable at certain, you know, points on, on their journey, so. Yeah, and that's kind of balanced with my pragmatism. I became very pragmatic as I grew up. So there is a balance in that because sometimes it's a tough love type of thing where you can feel for them, but you can't actually tell them that uh, because they need to get through it on their own. They need to, to develop those skills of overcoming. And so sometimes um, caring for them is not helping them. You know, a couple of years ago on this podcast, I had a chance to interview Jorge Garcia and Lena Martinez, who are two pharmacist couple that actually did the residency training together. And mm. they're now both in highly successful careers in Miami. I'm wondering for you and Brandon, two pharmacist couple, how's that working out for you? It's been great, actually. So, so Brandon's quite a, quite a bit younger than me. He's 18 years younger than me. We are both heavily involved in our state and local chapters. So the San Fernando Valley Society of Health System Pharmacists and then the California Society of Health System Pharmacists. So some people know that we're a couple and some don't. Again, the fact that we're a couple doesn't really matter. In my current role as president, I just have to make sure that I'm careful about closing doors if I'm on particular Zoom meetings that he doesn't need to know about. Until recently, he worked for CSHP doing some medical writing and then some precepting and, and education related stuff. Got it. You mentioned you the fact that you're president of CSHP at this time, the California mm-hmm. Society of Health System Pharmacists. Again, the, sort of the same question, Jim, is the fact that you're a gay man, is there does that have any influence over the way that you perform in that role? Is it influence sort of where you're guiding the organization? No. Again, that's me personally. I'm not a professional homosexual. Um, (laughs) I am a professional pharmacist and an academician and a leader, but the, the, the gay aspect is really just me. And so, and it's also not my role to change other people's decisions or even opinions. I can share with them my opinions, but I am not going to push my opinions or biases or whatever they are on somebody else, even if it's homophobic, because that's not my role. My role is to live my life. 
I am not here to change somebody else or to cure somebody else's homophobia. It is to, it is to withstand. I will do my best to protect others who need it and who, for whom my role is appropriate to protect them. But you know, it's not like I'm saying that CSHP needs needs to change its color platform to pink and mauve because it's just better. It's prettier. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not going to be me. Got it. When you take a step back and think about young people entering the profession today and LGBTQ pharmacists and pharmacy students, is there advice that you have for them? That's an interesting question. I almost go to them and ask for advice. Really? Why? The, the, the younger generation right now is just so much more out, so much more confident about their sexuality, and they are just more themselves. If you look at the, the evolution of the first LGBT reception that ASHP had at mid-year to the more, well, probably the last live one, you know, it was a small group and now it's a huge group. And everybody was kind of dressed the same conservative and initially, and now they're just dressed more fabulously. They're just, I think, I'm going to just throw this out there. I think it was Will and Grace. I think Will and Grace caused a societal shift in the personal, in the general population's opinion of homosexuality. Because you had the effeminate and you had the less effeminate and it was fine and it was funny and they were winning awards on primetime TV. So anyway, so I think that the people who grew up with the initial phase of Will and Grace, they just are more themselves than I ever would have been at that age. So if I were to give them any advice, I'd say, keep on trucking, keep on being you. And you will go where you need to go. Keep on trucking. We may have to explain that to those young people who didn't live in the 1970s. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I actually, you know, you talked about the will and grace effect. And I, I think you're right. And there's so much in popular culture today that really is provides role models and just opens conversations for people. But I'm interested, especially given your clinical expertise, where you've spent your time in clinical practice, do you think the AIDS epidemic changed the, the discussion as well? Yeah, absolutely. It changed for a generation, at least. It changed their how they dealt with their sexual awakening and the initial aspect of their, their sexual activity. I was speaking with somebody I don't know, it's been probably 18 years ago or so now, who I was dating. Uh, we were about the same age, and we both agreed that had we come out and started dating when we knew we were gay, you know, or in high school, that we probably would have had HIV because we were, we didn't have that perspective of, you know, that you get as an adult of your finality of your life. And so when I came out, and even though I was still fairly young, I knew what I needed to do to protect myself from getting HIV. Yep, absolutely. Do you and Brandon have uh, any specific plans to celebrate Pride this year? I'll be honest, I don't do Pride very often. Our involvement has been musically. So we met in a community band. He plays clarinet, I play trombone. And so we've done some Pride parades together. And we've done some other volunteering, selling tickets to get into Pride, LA Pride, um, which is a trip, uh, Long Beach Pride, selling drink tickets. 
So we've done that type of stuff, but then we'll kind of walk through and we'll look for a food vendor and grab a bite to eat and then leave. Are you going to be at the ASHP summer meeting in Phoenix? I will. So you have to make sure you get your pride bracelet while you're there. I did not know that they were going to be there. I will make sure that I wear it properly. Absolutely. And that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dean Jim Scott for joining me today to discuss his journey. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journeys podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. And enjoy Pride 2022. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.